Good evening. Welcome to our Sunday night service tonight. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation a lot tonight, but I'm going to reference 1 John 2.18. This is message number four on the Antichrist. Again, because of December, uh, we have been away from this study since November. We actually did the, the third message in this short series in November, and then we had all of our uh, December, Christmas, and other things uh, in the evenings during, during that month. So we come back to it, and uh, I've, I've referenced this study from 1 John 2.18 because there John says specifically, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, then, he says, are many Antichrists. So we have started out, first of all, talking about the spirit of Antichrist. There are many Antichrists, those things that, that uh, are contrary to God's word and even promote uh, what the Antichrist will do when he finally comes. We call that the spirit of Antichrist. Even now, are there many Antichrists. But the Antichrist is coming. And so then we've talked about the rise of the Antichrist, and then the reign of the Antichrist, and tonight I want to talk about the demise of Antichrist and uh, where we leave this study. So the Antichrist is coming. You know, there are a lot of different views, even among Christian people, as to what the future looks like, how to interpret the book of Revelation, is there going to be a millennial reign of Christ, and so forth. I mean, there are different views on that, I understand. But almost all of them have some place for an antichrist. Uh, probably the farthest one from us is the amillennial position, where uh, we're this is the kingdom of God. There's no thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But at the end of time, many of them believe there will be a, a tribulation-type period and an antichrist that comes, and then that'll be the end of everything. So even they have one. Then there. There is the preterist view. You know, those are the people who believe all of the prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. And uh, most of them believe that Nero, that terrible emperor, was the Antichrist that the Bible predicts. And then uh, Jesus came back in 70 AD. Now, kind of half of them believe that. So, but everybody's got an Antichrist somewhere, and they do because they believe uh, that such a person is coming. We are pre-millennialists here, also pre-tribulationists. So let me draw my, this map for you again with my pulpit. We believe that we're in this church age over here coming this direction. And when we get to a certain point, the rapture is going to happen. We're going to go to heaven to meet uh, the Lord in the air. And then this seven-year tribulation period begins. First of all, there's three and a half years on this side, three and a half years on this side. So once the rapture happens, then there is what I, I have called in our study the rise of Antichrist. So beginning here, when he's basically unknown, he rises to power up until this halfway point. When we get to the halfway point, then he comes to his full reign, where he becomes virtually the ruler of the world. And so in this second three and a half years of the tribulation period, is what I call the reign of the Antichrist, when those things that he does, the mark of the beast and the control of everything, the one world monetary system and religious systems and all of that happen in this second three and a half years. Well, then Jesus Christ is going to return. We're going to see this tonight, and we're going to come back with him. And that is when the Battle of Armageddon happens, 
where Antichrist comes to his end. So we see this progression, which is yet in our future, because again, we're back here in the church age. The rapture has not happened yet, nor the tribulation period, but it's coming, and that's what the Bible's talking about. So I want you to do, I want you to go to the end. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, and verses 7 through 10. This will be my last point. <laughs> so you see, if you have my outline there in front of you in the bulletin or on the screen, the Revelation 20, 7 through 10 is actually the last point we'll come to. So I'm going to do this tonight. I'm, I'm going to, we're going to read where the Antichrist finally ends up. We're going to read that first, and then we're going to go back into the book of Revelation a little ways to find out how he gets there. So that's kind of what we're doing. So in Revelation 21, here's my chart again up here. Jesus Christ has come back, and he has uh, put the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. He has bound Satan for a thousand years. So we're way out here now and reading Revelation 20 at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Verse 7, chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Amazing, that many lost people even in the millennium. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city all around Jerusalem. But what happens? Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, verse 10, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now notice this statement. Where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there for a thousand years. They are in the lake of fire. And notice then the pronoun. And they will be tormented. Who is that? Satan, who now is cast into the lake of fire, and the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet with him, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there you go. Follow the Antichrist, receive his mark, be fooled into thinking that he is the Christ. This is where he ends up, and this is where such people will end up. So it's a, it's a losing battle, isn't it? I think I told you that story about the young man who came to our church when we pastored out in Fort Collins, Colorado, and uh, who was a student at the university there. And I talked to him after the service, and he told me he was a Satanist. And I said, well, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I said, do you know what the Bible says about it? He says, yeah, I do. I said, do you know that in the end, he loses? And the young man said, yeah, I know that. I said, well, then why do you want to follow him? He says, I kind of enjoy doing it, basically was his answer. Sad when you think about it. This is where he ends up. So how did he get here? Let's look at this outline uh, that you have here and a few thoughts. So we're going to go back to chapter 16. So now go back to your left in the book of Revelation to chapter 16, kind of in the middle of that chapter, verses 12 through 16. And I want you to notice the last word in that section of 12 through 16. What's the last word? It's a word that appears only one time in the Bible. 
and that's the word Armageddon. And yet probably, I think I hear that word more often among pundits and especially newscasters and people who kind of make light of biblical things uh, or don't know what they're talking about. They use this word Armageddon all the time. Interestingly, that's the only place that it's used, though the area and all that it describes has been in the Bible a long time. So notice three thoughts about these verses uh, as we, and I title this section, His Mistake at Armageddon. The Antichrist is going to make a huge mistake because he's going to go to Armageddon thinking he can be the victor. And he's not going to be. So notice what happens. First of all, the timing of it. Verse 12, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Now, I, want, I just want to point out that when we look at the book of Revelation right here, three and a half years, three and a half years, we look at it as a progression of time. There are different views of that but uh, what is basically called the telescopic view. And that is, we, we have three judgments, right? We, we have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And basically, they're like this, three here, three here, three here. So what happens is you have, you have seven seals, and out of the seventh seal comes six or seven trumpets. And out of the seven trum seventh trumpet comes seven bowl judgments. So they just go kind of like they call it telescopic. It opens up as it goes across. There are other views that kind of say, well, you, you have seven seals that go for seven years, and then you repeat it with seven trumpets that go for seven years. And then you repeat that again and go for seven bowls that go. And so there are different ways to look at it. But you will find in conservative writers, especially pre-mill, pre pre-trib type writers, take it in a, in a consecutive progression through the year. So when the point is, the sixth angel, after seven seals, after seven trumpets, and now six out of seven bold judgments, it brings us very close to the end here. And that's the point. At the sixth bold judgment when it, as it's being poured out. That's the timing. So here, here's kind of a sad fact. This, this brilliant person called the Antichrist, and the world has seen seldom people like this. Evil people are brilliant people many times, of course. He spends three and a half years just getting to power, and now he comes to power, and in fewer than three and a half years, he's going to lose his power. I mean, our presidents last longer than that, <laughs> longer than three and a half years. That's all that this brilliant person is going to see is three and a half years of a reign, and then he's going to lose it. Now, secondly, as you move through this passage in verse 13, I call it the indwelling. Notice this, kind of interesting. John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Remember I told you this morning when demons are described in Scripture, it's often with the word unclean. The, the word uncleanness, here it is again. Unclean spirits like frogs. Well, I don't know. I kind of like frogs, uh, you know, but 
what you find out in the scripture is they were unclean. They're an unclean uh, animal to eat or whatever. And they're, they're usually associated with bad or evil things. So out of the mouth, uh, notice, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Out of their mouths comes these unclean spirits. Now, identity-wise, well, you have what's called the satanic trinity here. Rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have Satan, Antichrist, and then a false prophet. Satan always wanted to be God, always wanted to be in the place of God. The Antichrist is pretending to be Christ. And then the the false prophet is a false spirit that is doing things supposedly like the Holy Spirit would do it. Now, you can go back to chapter 13 and read that chapter and see the, the, uh, the progress of all three of these characters. But here they are described again. And uh, what is happening is that probably what this, what this pictures is, as these three speak, the evil spirits are using their voices to persuade the world and the people. So, yeah, I, I mean, in a sense, unclean stuff is coming out of their mouth. Unclean spirits coming out of their mouth. Uh, like someone who would be demon-possessed, and when you hear that person speak, you hear some odd or weird voice, so to speak. And probably that's the kind of thing that's happening here. But what are they doing? They are saying, uh, out of the mouth of the beast, the false prophet, verse 14, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and, and uh, the whole world to do what? Gather them together to battle. So here is, the, here is Satan, here's the Antichrist, here's the false prophet saying, we need to go to this battle. We need to do this. So the evil spirits and this unholy trinity are bringing people down to this place that in the end of this passage is going to be called Armageddon. So come to Armageddon. Now you have verse 15 uh, in red letters, if you have a, that kind of a Bible, where the Lord interjects his words and says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then back to the story, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Don't be fooled, the Lord is saying, by following these guys. Don't be fooled into thinking this is what I am doing. No, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. And blessed are those who, who watch and keep themselves pure from these unevil and, uh, or, or evil and unclean spirits. Come to Armageddon. Now, I have thirdly then the guiding of it in these verses to Megiddo. Now, Armageddon literally means the, the Mount of Megiddo, although... There may not be an actual mountain, but the valley of Megiddo is surrounded by mountains. This is the valley of Jezreel called Estralon uh, sometimes, and it's in northern Israel. Uh, if you were looking at the Sea of Galilee, 
uh, you would see a mountainous area where Jesus grew up in Nazareth and up in the mountainous area. And then just below that is a valley that goes across the nation, uh, east to west, about uh, 20 miles long, and that's the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, on a tour bus when I was in Israel, we went up the coast to that valley and took a, a road that went the length of that valley, and uh, I'm sitting there, and this was a secular bus, uh, you know, just people, tourist people, and I'm sitting on that bus, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is the valley of, of Armageddon right here, where, where battles have been fought. This is where Deborah and Barak uh, defeated Sisera. This is, this is where Gideon defeated the Midianites. And, and the reason why this valley is so important is any invading army coming from the north, the old Assyrians, the Babylonians, they would have to come around the desert, enter Israel from the north, and go through this valley into the land. And that's why so many historic battles took place there. You've got to stop them there. If you don't stop them there, they're going to flood, they're going to flood the country. So this is, this is a famous valley uh, where battles have been fought, and of course this last valley or, or battle is going to be fought here. I want, I want you to uh, turn left again in your Bible back to chapter 14 just to notice a verse in chapter 14 right at the end of uh, the chapter, verse 20. Here is kind of a, a preview, uh, uh, looking ahead to this battle. The wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine presses up to the horses' bridles. You remember that expression, right? I mean the blood will flow. For what? 1,600 furlongs, or you might have it translated 200 miles. Well, the valley of Megiddo is not 200 miles. It's 20 miles maybe long. But I'm going to read you a description from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, that describes this same thing. When Jesus, let me give you the short of it here first. When Jesus returns in, and comes and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, he is going to begin and engage this battle from way down in a place called Basra all the way up to the Valley of Megiddo, which is about 200 miles. And that's what it's describing here. And here is Isaiah describing it in Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Describing the Lord himself. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? Quote, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the uh, and uh, excuse me, the wine press alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger. This is Jesus speaking, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. You read it here in this verse to the uh, bridles of the horses. 
I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. This is an awesome passage, and it's not the only place Isaiah describes uh, or the prophets describe such a thing. And so if he begins at Basra, which is down almost in the Sinai area peninsula, and comes northward to the Valley of Megiddo, uh, then uh, this takes a long campaign of battles, and it's a bloody thing, and I'm going to read you more verses about it here in a minute, and that's Jesus returning in glory. So Armageddon is quite uh, an incident. So what, what is his mistake? That is, what is the Antichrist's mistake? He thinks he can come and win this thing. He thinks he can come and defeat the Lord Jesus Christ himself who returns from heaven in all of his glory. So let's go to the second thought, and that is his defeat, of course, which is going to happen. Now notice now we go to chapter 19. So Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21. And let me remind you where you are here in the book of Revelation the thousand years hasn't happened yet. That's in chapter 20. As you look at the first few verses of chapter 20, you'll see the reference to a thousand years six different times in those verses. So in chapter 19, you're here where the Lord comes back in glory. Notice I have first the glorious victor back to to verse 11 of chapter 19. This is, this is the great passage in Revelation that describes Jesus coming back in glory to the earth. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except he himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And not only that, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with which he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Here he comes. This is the Lord coming to Armageddon, coming to back to this earth and, and commencing this battle that ends up finally in that valley. Now, it's interesting also that in verse 14, the armies in heaven are coming with him. We're coming. So if we're correct about our pre-tribulational rapture, and we've been in heaven for seven years, we are these that come back with him. So do this with me. Go back up into this chapter to verse 7, 19 verse 7. Here at the end of the tribulation period, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Well, the marriage of the lamb has come, aorist tense, it's done. And so here we are in heaven at the end of the seven years, ready to come back with the Lord. And we've gone to the father's house and we are the wife of the Son of God Himself, the church of Jesus Christ. Not only that, then, it says in verse 8, to her 
was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteous acts, or if you had the old version, righteousness is a plural in that language, the righteousnesses of the saints. How do we get our white robes? Where do they come from? The Bema Seat of Christ that gives us our rewards, not only crowns, but white robes to wear so that when we come back with the Lord in glory, we bring honor and glory to Him. And so here's the bride in her white garments, and then verse 9, He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called, now notice, not just the marriage from verse 7, but the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. So the marriage supper is on the earth, and it's called the millennial reign of Christ. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage in heaven, marriage supper on the earth. Just as, you know, uh, when uh, we have a wedding and they have a, a reception somewhere, you know, and basically the reception lasts as long as dad's money lasts, you know, and then it's over an hour or two. <laughs> but our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mind, and our marriage supper lasts for a thousand years. And it's, it's his uh, earth and his land. So that's the glorious victor. Well, we're going to look at verse 17 and uh, come up there. And the first thing we find is this fleshly supper. Now, remember, blood is flying. Bodies are flying. And verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds of the, uh, that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh, notice that word, flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. So what is happening here? This is that bloodiness that happens all the way from Basra to the valley of Megiddo, and the, the blood is flowing uh, to the horse's bridles, and God calls the, the ravenous birds and animals to come and have a feast. Let me read you two other, two other surprising passages that you might put with this. One is Psalm 110. You know, the, the wonderful thing, the, the Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm that probably is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And not only that, but thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. Well, let me fill in the verses. Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, it's verse 1 that says, Sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. But verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Boy, the, the book of Hebrews uses that phrase. Verse 5, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Here is a priest, a Melchizedekian priest, who strikes through kings in the day of his wrath. Verse 6, he shall judge among the heathen. He, listen to this phrase. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. 
That's our Melchizedekian priest who comes to this earth to reign on this earth. Amazing, isn't it? I want to read you then Isaiah 34. I read 39 a minute ago, or uh, 63 a minute ago. But, but uh, 34 says it this way. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, his fury upon all the armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. You know, as I read these kinds of things, it, it's almost shocking to us. But we have to read the whole Bible, and we have to take the whole Bible literally. We know Jesus as our Savior. We know him as the babe in Bethlehem's manger. We know him as the lamb that was slain. We know the, the meek and mild and gentle Christ who came and gave himself as a lamb who didn't strike back, who didn't speak back because he needed to die for our sins. That's how we know him. No wonder people have a hard time then looking to the future when the Bible describes what he will be like when he comes back as a king, and they don't like that. And so we allegorize it away, we spiritualize it away, we talk about it in other ways, but this is going to happen. Does the Lord like sin in this world? Will sin go unpunished? Will this world do what it's going to do from now to then and what has? And the Lord will never take uh, any action against that. His wrath, his thumos, remember, his wrath will be poured out on this world. And those who say, well, if there's a God, why didn't he do something? You know, why do we have this slaughter? And why do we have that slaughter? If God's a loving God and cares, why doesn't he do something? I'm telling you, he will do it. What he has said is, I'll do it then. I'm not going to do it every time some incident happens. I will wait until my day, and then I will come, and I will do it. If you say, well, I, I would like to see the Lord do it. No, you wouldn't, because you'd be in it. It'd be on you personally. So, striking language. But the sudden conclusion I have, thirdly, back to Revelation 19, and now look at verse 19. And I saw the beast. Now, that's the Antichrist. So here it is. You know, all of this has led up to that bloody battle at Armageddon. The beast was captured, or uh, excuse me, 19. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, capital H, him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast, that is the Antichrist, was taken uh, was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Now, that's not the first time that's happened, but don't pass up that word lightly. The false prophet ha will have the ability to work what we call miracles, and people will follow him for that reason, these signs that he did in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two, the, the Antichrist himself and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake 
of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So what is the defeat at, at Armageddon? He ends up, of course, the, the, the Antichrist and his false prophet are cast immediately into the lake of fire. What's, what's different about that is they don't go to the white throne judgment. They don't stand before God at the white throne and the books are open. They, the, the, the judgment is bypassed, the books are bypassed, and they go directly to the lake of fire, which is what's going to happen to Satan too, as we'll read in a little bit. But what about, what about Satan? He's the one that coaxed him to come to this battle too. Well, that's why you have chapter 20. And look at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. So, the Antichrist and the false prophet immediately into the lake of fire where they will be for a thousand years. Satan is bound for a thousand years. One of the reasons why I have a hard time with those millennial views who say, you know, well, we're in the millennial now. This is the kingdom of God now. If we are, then Satan is bound. Satan is bound right now. And there are some people who believe that. <laughs> Satan is bound. I say, well, Take the blinders off your eyes then. If you think Satan is bound today, look at what he's doing. But he will be for that thousand years. When we come back, we're the armies that come back with him uh, to that time. Now, one more, one more point. Uh, and so we go back to where we started, chapter 20. So now the thousand years happens. The, the Antichrist and the false prophet have been in the lake of fire. And Satan has been bound but he will be released for a while. So verse 7 of chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. Again, amazing that that many people can live in the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ on the earth and not be saved. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And what happens? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. In other words, just like the Antichrist. But notice this, where the beast and the false prophet, what's that little word? Are. A thousand years later, the Antichrist and the false prophet, two human beings, have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Now, there are those people who say, number one, there is no such thing as hell or a lake of fire. There are those people who say, well, when you're cast into the lake of fire, you're burnt up in an instant and it's gone. <laughs> What happens to these people? They have been there for a thousand years and they're still suffering 
and feeling the pain of the lake of fire a thousand years later. And not only that, they will be there. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So notice in my outline I say, where is the Antichrist then? What's his eternal destiny? First of all, with Satan. <laughs> he will be with him for a thousand years. But notice secondly, with his followers? All right, now I want you to go back to chapter 14 again. Chapter 14 and verse 9 through 13. Now earlier in the book, right after, right after chapter 13 where the mark of the beast was introduced, the mark of the beast came halfway through the tribulation period, so it's, it's just after this, and we have, we have these verses. Let's begin in verse 9. The third angel, so we're back to the trumpet judgment, uh, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, if anyone, and does what? Receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath, the thumos of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he, this person who received the mark of the beast, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name." pretty final and this is and this is why those people who don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture are always worried about whether they've received the mark of the beast or not oh no i have a credit card i must have the mark of the beast you know oh no uh, they put a shot in me and who knows what was in that shot it must be the mark of the beast no it's not as long as you're here on this earth you have not received the mark of the beast and it has not happened uh, but it will, in a very pronounced way, where a person has to make a conscious decision, do I worship him or do I worship God? And they will say, no, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to worship that Antichrist. And I'm going to receive that mark so I can buy and sell, sure, uh, and I will bow down and I will worship. Now, those people lose their chance to be saved, evidently, from these passages. That's how I read it. Once they have made that decision, the Holy Spirit is off of them. There's no more conviction. They will not be saved. And where will they be? In the lake of fire. And you know what these verses tell us about that lake of fire? Number one, it's hot because it's burning with fire and brimstone. Number two, it is real. There really is such a place. And number three, it is long. It lasts forever. And I've told you often, I may not like the doctrine. I can't understand how a person can be alive in the lake of fire forever and ever with no end. But I have to tell you, the Bible teaches it. So I have no choice about it. It's not my decision. It's the Lord himself, the righteous, holy God who does this. So we come back to chapter 20 where we started, and it ends up the same way. Uh, in verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, hot and real and long. Now, I want to close with, these, with this passage. 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we, we were there in our study. That is where the Antichrist is described when he comes into the temple and desecrates the temple in Jerusalem, right here at the halfway point. And that's what his rise to power brings him to that point. And at that point, he breaks the covenant and he reigns during this last three and a half years. Here's how the verses describe then this event. Then the law, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 12. Then the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will, down here, consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Lord's going to do that. But verse 9, this coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, which we've seen, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteousness, or excuse me, unrighteous deception, now listen, of those who perish, because we've just read about them receiving the mark of the beast, those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Strong delusion at this point. They believe the lie that this man, this Antichrist, is really the, the Christ. Once they do that, their eternal destiny is sealed. Because it goes on, verse 12, and ends this way, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I would rather live my unrighteous life than become one of those Christians. I'd rather, I'd rather do what I want to do, what this guy's going to let me do if I'll just take his mark. I'd rather have that. So I went back this afternoon and just kind of glanced at different commentators on, on Revelation, or, or excuse me, on Thessalonians that I like. And basically, they, if I could summarize what they said about these verses, they said this. If I were you, I would not put my hopes in the future by refusing Jesus Christ as Savior and thinking that in the tribulation period, if you see that, oh, I was wrong, I'll go ahead and get saved. Uh, they say, I would not, if I were you, uh, trust that fact because a strong delusion will come upon you and you won't. That's the conclusion we're not told that in so many words. We know that there will be people saved in the tribulation period, but not those that receive the mark of the beast. So we're in critical times, folks. Uh, the Lord could come back at any time. This tribulation period could start tonight if the Lord uh, returned in, in rapture form. But boy, what a future is coming. But this Antichrist, what a joke. I thought to myself, you know, I kind of like World War II stuff. Once I read it, my dad was a World War II veteran, of course. And, and uh, you know, old Adolf Hitler thought he would, he would start a third Reich, that is a third millennium, a third thousand years. He would set up a kingdom that would last for a thousand years, the third Reich. How long did it last? About like this. That's what happens with these kind of guys who think, uh, that they can oppose God's will and make history go the way they want it. It doesn't work out that way. 
And this guy, this Antichrist, will be smarter than all of them, will be greater than all of them. He'll last for three and a half years, and this will be his end. Don't follow this. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be part of that bride of Christ that comes back to this earth and lives and reigns with Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb for a thousand years. All right, let's stand and let's go to a prayer and then let's sing a song. Let's pray together as we've thought about these things tonight. Father, uh, what what a, a amazing passages we have read tonight. And Father, we believe they're so. We believe this is exactly what will happen. So, Father, it, it causes our heart to think of people's souls and the gospel that can go out in the world today and save people now while there's still time. So, Father, we pray in this age of grace. We thank you, Father, that you are long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance to give people time to be saved. And so, Father, we pray for that. And then, Father, we thank you. Uh, that we will be raptured to heaven to be with you and the marriage of the Lamb. And so, Father, we also look forward to that. But, Father, I pray you'd impress on our hearts the things that we need tonight. Teach us the things that we need to know. May you receive honor and glory by it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. Kent, come ahead. <laughs>